Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. A quick reminder that this podcast is for general information and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. We want to acknowledge that we recorded this conversation with Louise Adams just a few weeks before the catastrophic fires began to devastate Australia. Our hearts go out to all of the people and animals affected by this terrifying natural disaster. Please visit our show notes for information on the Australian Red Cross and how you can support in their relief effort. Happy New Year! We want to take a moment to thank our patrons who help us create resources for a diverse audience. If you're moved by our mission and find our work valuable, please consider becoming an official patron. You'll help keep the Full Bloom podcast going strong. And as a new benefit, patrons can submit their body-positive parenting questions to be answered in a future podcast episode on Season 3. You write in whatever body-positive parenting question is on your mind, and we find a qualified researcher or expert to respond to the question on the show. Become a patron now to have your body-positive parenting question expertly answered by visiting www.fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast episode number 45. Since this is our first episode of the new year, we realize that diets are on high alert. This being the most lucrative time for the weight loss, diet, health, wellness industry to prey on our vulnerability and New Year's resolutions. And we want to start 2020 off by debunking it all for you once again. We're very excited to be joined by Louise Adams, who is a clinical psychologist and host of the non-diet podcast, All Fired Up, joining us all the way from Australia. She's here to take us with a fine-tooth comb through the research on putting, uh, I don't even want to say it, children on diets. Louise is the Vice President of Hayes Australia, that's Health at Every Size Australia, and first grabbed our attention with a blog post she wrote back in September 2019 about the science behind Kerbo, the very controversial weight loss app that WW, formerly Weight Watchers, released for kids. Louise is the director of Untrapped, an online program for people with eating and body weight concerns, and she also works privately consulting for private practices in Sydney and online. She's got extensive experience speaking to the media about non-diet issues and has written two books, The Non-Diet Approach Guidebook for Psychologists and Counselors and Mindful Moments. Louise has a special interest and expertise in weight issues from a social justice perspective and 
just like us, is determined to make a difference in changing our society's perceptions about dieting, weight loss, and body image. And now for those of you who are unfamiliar with this kids app, Kerbo, it looks like a game and is marketed to help kids get healthier while also including weight loss success stories on its website. Basically, it's a weight loss app for children where kids learn via a traffic light system about healthy eating, aka how to assign value to food and police and restrict their food choices. The first diet. Yes. So, so healthy. Along with many others in the community of eating disorder professionals, uh, including us, Louise was understandably furious to learn about children as young as eight being targeted by the weight loss industry, and in particular to see that WW was using research to justify that their app works and would not increase eating disorder risk in children. So in this wonderful blog post, which we've connected through our show notes, Louise dug into all of that research that WW used to back their app and assess their claims. She did so much work picking through the original research and cutting through the smoke and mirrors, and we're so happy to hear what she learned today. Louise, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So are we. So before we get into the research, um, could you tell us a bit about your background and the work you do? Yeah, well, as you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been in the field for like a long time. I think it's like 20 years, which makes me feel very old. (laughs) And um, I'm really passionate about the whole kind of idea of how diet culture is just impacting on our mental health. So I spend a lot of time ranting about it in various um, places on top of my clinical work. So I've got a podcast where I talk to people all over the world, just like you guys do, about um, things that are basically annoying people about diet culture. And I love just meeting people in that way. And I also love meeting health professionals because I do a lot of training with health professionals here in Australia. Um, and helping them kind of change their views um, and acknowledge a little bit more how how much the diet culture soup is infecting everybody's thinking. And as you know, I blog as well. I'm, I'm pretty busy, but I, I do find time to chill and watch Netflix and hang out with friends and go to the beach and stuff like that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. Balances everything. And we, we're with you. It's This platform has allowed us to connect with so many amazing people just like yourself. And we're particularly eager to just get into it with you about Weight Watchers. And, you know, we've shared with our listeners how we found you through that blog post you wrote. But even before Kerbo, the app was released, you've been involved in advocacy to challenge WW, I guess, as we now need to call them. And in particular, the company's targeting of kids and teens. Can you talk us through why this is such a problem for diet companies to market to young people? Oh, my God. It's just such a, like, this gets me so fired up. (laughs) I've been, I have been bitching about work for a long time because they're such a, a global company. And you know what? A few years ago, they even approached me and wanted me to be on their quote-unquote scientific advisory committee to give them cred, which I said no to because I don't work with weight loss companies. But they're definitely, I think, as as the world is waking up to how crap dieting is and how 
weight loss programs just really don't work in the long term. They're looking for new markets. So they've been guilty of targeting kids in the past. So last year they did um, this whole push starting over there in the States to offer teenagers the program for free to get them in early and to kind of create the like a captive market and it was so good to see the pushback that happened globally you know with the hashtag wake up weight watchers mm-hmm. and and I blogged about it and did a podcast and ranted and raved about it as well and you know it was awesome because that ended up with weight watchers backing down I think and not selling that program but here they are popping up again with the Kerbo app which is, you know, a brand new marketing tool aimed at getting kids into their horrible, ineffective and damaging program. Getting kids in early to a brand, it just locks them into a way of thinking about food and weight and movement that's really eating disordered. And that's what really annoys me. It's this kind of normalising of a disordered way of thinking that the companies are doing. And so it, we really need to challenge it and think deeply about, are these companies really interested in health? No, they don't give a shit about health. They actually care about locking in people at a younger and younger age. Uh, so they'll get the repeat business and work, work, operate on repeat business. And there was even a documentary that was done where they interviewed the old CFO of what work, and he admits in that interview that Weight Watchers actually has a business model that depends on return business. And like they know that about 80 something percent of people will just wait cycle and they absolutely count on that return business in order to keep their numbers going. So this is not a company that cares about health. This is a company that cares about locking you in and getting all of your money for hopefully the rest of your life. Yeah, it it cares about weight cycling, like getting people, you know, that's basically the business model is get people into the weight cycling cycle and keep them there. Mm -hmm. Set them up to fail. Mm -hmm. Set them up to fail and succeed and fail and succeed and fail and succeed. And I guess never start to notice that it's it's not you that's failing the diet, but that it's the diet failing you or the system failing you. Yeah, it's it's keeping everybody away from that fact, which is like this is a really ineffective product, um, but it uses shame and blame of people and it sort of relies on the shame and blame in diet culture that people um, will just like keep on trying. Absolutely. And what, what tactics do you want parents to know that they use that parents need to be on the lookout for sneaky ones that seem kind of legit who just want the best for their kids I know they play on parent guilt as well it's just so annoying I think what they're doing at the moment is hiding the real intention which is you know to get kids into weight cycle them um, for life and they're using health at the moment so using it this is this is going to help kids build a healthy relationship with food and they're using science so they're using sciencey sounding stuff like the Kerbo app they keep raving on about how it's a scientific program based on this traffic light system that's been scientifically investigated and shown to be like the bee's knees so of course a parent 
hearing this, uh, you know, a prestigious uni that has um, come up with the traffic light system and it's all been tested. It sounds so safe and it sounds so sensible. And they even kind of also offer like, oh, it's a free app. And, and so there's that kind of reel in as well, even though when you get into it, like all of the health coaching stuff isn't free at all. So they're, they're using this like um, get in easily and using the science sparkle to get parents in and getting parents thinking that this is normal and a great way of getting kids to look after their health. This is what's interesting. I mean, it was the spring before this all the hullabaloo started. Yeah. And Kerbo was not affiliated at the time. And this is what was so perplexing. Leslie and I got an inquiry from, I think, a parent who had been directed to us through one of the coaches at a program called Kerbo. And this was before Kerbo had connected with Weight Watchers, or at least before that had become public. And we were like, what's Kerbo? And so we Googled it. I remember we saw those before and after pictures, which alarmed us of like prepubescent kids that like should be chunking up. And they were like celebrating this slenderization of these like perfectly normal children. It was like very disturbing to us. I don't remember what we did with that inquiry, but I, I remember that's the day we learned about Kerbo. So it's just interesting to think that on one hand, this is obviously very very dangerous, and we're going to get to the research now. But then within this system, you have like well-meaning coaches that are sort of trying to support these kids via Kerbo that are somewhat connected to other things. I mean, they knew about the Full Bloom Project, which is like the opposite of a weight loss program. So it's it's curious like that and I guess it's a po- it's a call for us to think about the nuances here, right? That it's easy to vilify this as like the big bad wolf, you know? But it's just interesting that you do, even within the system, have these sort of well-meaning support staff in there that are trying to link parents to resources like ours while simultaneously helping kids like count how many starches they're eating. So as, as a quick anecdote, we, we were acquainted with them before this. This news. News. Yeah, and we were alarmed for sure. But I'm wondering if you can talk our listeners through the research paper published by the Fast Track team to justify the Kerbo app. Can you tell us about the Fast Track trial? What is it? What should parents need to know? Yeah, so over here in Australia, there's a, a, there's a weight loss experiment that's going on called the Fast Track to Health trial. It's big business. This has a $1.2 million grant from the university, uh, sorry, from the NH and MRC. So it's a lot of money that they've uh, gathered together to run this experiment. And it's extreme weight loss. So they're recruiting teenagers aged 13 to 17, and they're putting them through a year-long semi-starvation experiment. So it's an it's a intermittent fasting trial. So there'll be kids in the intermittent fasting group. So for three days of the week, those kids will have like a quarter of their calorie needs um, a day. And I'm talking like in between six and 700 calories a day for three days of the week for an entire year. Um, And that follows on from because the first month, all of the kids will actually be on a very low calorie diet. So they'll be just having shakes. That's all they're having for a whole month. And then following that month, the kids in the intermittent fasting arm will do that 
fasting three days a week for the rest of the year. And another group of kids will do um, what they call constant calorie restriction. So this is the absolute definition of a starvation experiment because that intake is so incredibly low. And this is happening to teenagers. You know, like you said, teenagers at a point in time when their bodies are really changing they, they have higher calorie needs in that window than, you know, a lot of the times in their lives. They're trying to go through puberty and they're trying to grow. And what they're being encouraged to do in the fast track trial is, is to shrink. And when I heard about the fast track trial, I, I was actually at an eating disorders conference when I heard about this trial, because um, funnily enough, one of the researchers in the trial is a body image researcher here in Australia. So we were all quite shocked to hear about her participation in this trial. So I have kicked up a bit of a stink about the fast track because I just don't think that this is a good idea. (laughs) Um, And I've complained to the ethics committee that approved it numerous times and had knockbacks numerous times. So there's been a bit of a global pushback against the fast track trial, which is really encouraging. And I'm talking like we had a petition where over 25,000 people around the world called for this trial to be put to a stop because of the potential harm to kids. Um, We know that dieting is the number one risk factor for development of an eating disorder in teenagers. And we also know that teenagers are at massively increased risk for development of an eating disorder. So the peak age for when kids get disordered eating is 14 years old, which is smack bang in the middle of um, this age group that the fast trackers are targeting. Um, so there's just, there's so many problems uh, with this research, so much risk with this research that really hasn't been heard by the team. And unfortunately, in spite of numerous complaints and um, numerous eating disorder organisations around the world calling for this to be stopped, it's still going ahead, unfortunately. Uh, and recruitment is happening and these kids here in Australia right now are going through this horrible starvation experiment. Oh it's just it's just kind of like, well, hasn't this experiment been done in adults? In and World I mean, War II. Don't we, <laughs> yeah, Ansel Keys. Ansel like, Keys. Don't we have enough evidence in our whole body of work to suggest that this is not going to work? Well, what are the fast track researchers claiming? Like, why would a parent and their child participate in this trial? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we have so much evidence that dieting doesn't work, that it's almost like denying that is like on par with denying climate change. It's Mm -hmm. like the science is in. (laughs) Diets don't work. The fast track team um, seem blissfully unaware of that fact and have actually used literature from the adult research, you know, because, you know, fasting is so cool right now. Everybody loves the intermittent fasting thing. So they, they've just sort of used a few adult papers that they start their paper by saying, you know, it's intermittent fasting has shown success in adults which it just hasn't, but that's what they say. And they use a couple of studies from the adult literature. And what they're claiming um, for this fast track experiment is that they have done a pilot um, with about 30 kids 
And so they're using the information from that pilot to tell parents that they've done this pilot and in the pilot, the, the teenagers found it really acceptable and lovely and fun and they lost weight and they showed improvements in health um, indicators. That pilot study only went for six months. It only had um, 21 kids finish the experiment. Uh, and when I actually combed through the results of that pilot, it is the opposite of impressive. Like It's such... It's almost laughable that it got published, uh, let alone the, the claims that the researchers were making. So it's difficult when you read the actual paper to figure out what happened to the teens who underwent the six-month uh, experiment. But I managed to stumble across a paper that one of the researchers presented at a conference where she was speaking in plain English about what happened. So those kids in the pilot, on average, lost three and a half kilos in 12 weeks when they were doing the starvation casting stuff. And then by six months, they had regained one and a half kilos. So they were, they were doing the weight regain. You can see the weight cycle thing happening. But because they stopped the experiment at, at you know, six months, the, um, the net weight loss was two kilos. Wow, how impressive. And there really weren't that many improvements in terms of health improvements, although they were quoted in the media here in Australia saying, oh, there's been all these improvements in blood pressure and cholesterol in the pilot study. When you read the paper, that actually didn't happen at all. There was no change in cholesterol or blood pressure or insulin resistance. There was only a small change in plasma triglycerides, but those were kind of normal to begin with anyway. And they took nine vascular measures, like real overkill in looking at their heart function. And of those cardiovascular measures, only one was improved at the end of the experiment. And they also did, they checked in on their quality of life, um, seven different areas of quality of life, and only two of them were improved. So they've taken this data as evidence that the pilot study was really effective and awesome, and now they're going to implement it in, they're aiming for 186 children now in the year-long version of the fast track. So my encouragement to people when you hear stuff like this is to go back to the original paper and read it because it's really not at all the story that you hear in the media. Like, in my opinion, that pilot is a joke. Well, it's also, it's like, it's, it matches what we do here in the media, which is these, you know, try this diet, it'll work for this, and it'll work for that, and it'll work for that. And then when you actually dig, there's no follow-up or follow-up, you know, less than five years. And the ones that do have the follow-up at five years show like a completely different story. So everyone's bought into that six-month result that like, so this is just the same exact thing, basically. It's just kind of crazy that with all the weight science research that's been done, we wouldn't look at this and say, this is not, this is just more of the same. Uh-huh. More, yeah. Same shit, different day. And <laughs> why, why are we doing this again? Why are we spending a million dollars on this? One of, one of the other things that really bothers me about this trial and what they're doing, the location of the hospitals where it's being done in two different hospitals here in Australia. And the location of the hospitals means that the kids who are going to be recruited are from you know, lower socioeconomic status and often 
you know, cult like refugee background, uh, Australian Aborigine background, you know, really quite um, vulnerable populations are being targeted and then given this sort of semi-starvation condition, which is another kind of abhorrent level of... Um, Deprivation. It, it's just so... Uh, ugh, makes my makes my skin burn with fire. <laughs> I'm going to breathe. <laughs> well, on to WW. And do you call it WOA? Did I hear you say that? I got, uh, yeah. What, what, I just what, refuse what? to take it seriously. Oh, <laughs> that's funny. Well, on to what, what? They used a review published by Fast Track to support this product that we're talking about to argue that childhood dieting is completely safe. And we think you did amazing work in your blog post picking through claims in the review. Can you walk us and our listeners through what you found? Like what were your main takeaways? Yeah. It's been my hunch for a little while that this team are creating an agenda in in the research literature which is trying to normalise teenage dieting and trying to um, push back at the idea that it's dangerous and causes eating disorders. So I wasn't surprised when they published this meta-analysis, which reviewed um, data on teenage dieting and eating disorder risk. I wasn't surprised at all that they published that because that, that matches what they're trying to do to justify interventions like the fast track. But when you read the paper, it is, again, really quite crap. So it's a meta-analysis, which means that they grouped together all of the studies that they could find on teens who were dieting, and they tried to look at teens who were doing um, what they call expert-led dieting, so like hospital-based obesity clinics for teens and stuff like that. But And they got 30 different studies together. And of those 30 studies, like they were so completely different from each other. Like some were inpatient where the kids actually lived in a hospital for a year. But some were like one was a Jenny Craig program. So not all of these programs are like professionally run, not by a long shot. Um, So wildly different studies. And they claim that they had data on like two and a half thousand kids, right? But when you read the paper itself, almost all of these papers were just like you were saying before, really short-term interventions. And um, there was only in fact three papers that followed kids up for longer than two years after the diet stopped. I mean, and that is dreadful because the main thing that this paper concluded is that um, structured and professionally run obesity treatment was associated with reduced eating disorder prevalence and reduced risk and reduced symptoms. Um, But they actually should have said, like, this paper has concluded that we really know nothing virtually about the long-term impact of dieting on eating disorder risk because we only had complete eating disorder data, get this, on 195 kids out of 2,500. So that's like 7% of this whole sample that they looked at that they had any information on that's meaningful because my tip is absolutely just ignore all all diet research that that isn't long-term because everything looks good in the short term. The long-term stuff is what's interesting. And an analogy is like smoking. If you're trying to kind of investigate the long-term impact on health of smoking, you need to follow people for long enough, right? If you only follow people for a year or two after they pick up smoking, uh, there's not going to be anything much for you to see. 
it's only when you get further down the line that the real impact of that shows up. And it's exactly the same when we're talking about eating disorder risk. So for those 195 kids that they did have eating disorder data on, somewhere between 5 to 9% of them were showing signs of disordered eating. Um, and that statistic is not in the paper because they have kind of clumped all of the information together and meta-analysed all of the short-term stuff alongside the long-term stuff. So it just doesn't show up. So statistically, what they're showing might be correct, but clinically, as in like in real life, it's all being hidden and not talked about. And I could talk in detail about how crap the meta-analysis was because it's full of errors. It's full of um, like just incorrect numbers, misrepresentation of data, and they've even kind of, they've left out a few parts that don't look good. Like critically, they've left out one of the long-term studies where the risk was highest. This is like the 9% kind of thing. They just didn't talk about that at all, which is weird because other researchers who have looked at that paper, that exact paper, they have used that paper as evidence that eating disorder risk does increase after doing childhood or teenage dieting interventions. So I really got annoyed. Um, and on top of blogging about the paper, I wrote a letter to the editor of the journal, Obesity Reviews, and happily they published that letter. So it's now out in the world that this claim really isn't um, based on anything factual. <laughs> um, and really what they should have been claiming from this whole thing is that we really don't know. And we really um, need to kind of change the way research is being done in teenagers because it's a crap tunnel of meaninglessness at the moment where everyone's just doing short-term interventions and then crowing about their um, successes and it's not going to be challenged. And the problem with the fast track too is it's only going for a year. So they're going to have results that aren't going to be long enough to pick up any kind of harm. Why would they only do it for a year given that we know and most scientists in this field know that that's crap data to only follow up for one year. It would do nothing to improve the science. Yeah, well, exactly, right? But, I mean, then you have to ask yourself the question, are they looking to actually find out the answer to this question or are they interested in getting more funding money to take this further and further? I mean, it just sounds like a perfect case of looking for what you want to find and it's just sort of stopping there. It's such a, like a partisan approach to science and a spooky one because it's unsafe. You know, I think a lot of people that are outspoken about their dissent for this product and we're with you and what the context, of course, is that weight stigma exists and you know, these appearance ideals exist and diet culture exists and it's incredibly hard and painful to be a person, to be a parent of a person who's in even a remotely marginalized body. I mean, it's all so relative. And so I think that we have this conversation with you. We're fired up with you. And I'm sure just like you, we have so much compassion for parents that are like, oh my gosh, but like my kid is so uncomfortable in their body or my kid is picked on or, you know, anything to help them feel better. And of course, we're here also like you trying to say, oh, but there are other ways. But I think that 
you know, it's important to contextualize all of this in reality, which is that it's really hard to not have that kind of thin privilege that programs like this are claiming they can sell you. And so I feel for anyone that, despite the research, is still curious or still wondering if maybe they'll be the outlier or, you know, maybe they'll defy the odds just because it's very hard. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think um, the it's really playing on parents' guilt about the health implications of having a child or a teenager in a larger body. Parents are really terrified. And I totally get uh, why. Of course, you would listen to a pediatrician who's saying, you know, you need to enroll your child in this experiment because, you know, otherwise they're going to be larger adults and they're going to get all of the health problems associated with being larger in adulthood. So, the pressure is definitely on. Yeah. What advice do you have for those parents? So get across the literature because um, there's a lot out there, like we know, <laughs> to say that there are there are really good alternatives to focusing on shrinking the size of your kid's body and to talk about supporting health behaviours rather than pathways that only focus on weight loss. So the American Pediatric Association talk about this. They talk about discouraging dieting in kids and teens because they're so aware of the risk of eating disorders. It's just not worth putting your kid under that kind of pressure. Uh, So we can really wonderfully support people in looking after your body and getting a really relaxed and lovely relationship with food and practicing awesome stuff like intuitive eating and enjoyment, moving your body for joy as opposed to moving your body in order to shrink it. Uh, And my encouragement to parents always is to go and find out um, a practitioner who works with the health at every size model um, because there's so many wonderful people around the world doing this. And the thing is, you know, the, the fast trackers have criticised my criticism by saying that health at every size or, you know, weight-inclusive care is like a do-nothing approach. Yeah. And that nothing could be further from the truth. It's about helping people cherish and look after your body. And, and there's lots of ways of doing that without trying to shrink it. So it's definitely not a do-nothing thing. Dietitians like Ellen Satter has wonderful books and resources on how to look after your family in a way that it helps preserve your relationship with food and um, get stuff like intuitive eating happening or without, you know, this is absolutely for people in all shapes and sizes of bodies. Um, And as parents, I think the best thing we can do for our kids is allow this kid's body to change without panicking. (laughs) Listening to podcasts like yours and going to see um, practitioners who are knowledgeable about adolescence but from a weight inclusive perspective you can absolutely get help there's very little evidence in fact there's no evidence that putting kids on diets in childhood will um, ensure that they are healthy adults because there are so few kids that can white knuckle weight loss um, into through into adulthood there's just no research there all we've got is like the the kind of quality of research like we've been talking about today so we we really need to stop doing stuff that causes known harms Um, and one of the things that concerns me about all this weight cycling stuff weight cycling is really bad for your body it's really bad for your health 
um, and can actually end up causing the very things that are associated with being in a larger body anyway, <laughs> which, you know, that that is mind-blowing. So weight stability um, is much healthier for a human body than weight cycling. Yes, absolutely. So can you leave us with a little bit of hope? What successes <laughs> have you seen in the fight against weight? What, what, and Kerbo, for example, and just um, pushing back against weight loss agenda and the diet, diet culture in general. Leave us with some hope. Please. <laughs> I'm so filled with hope because people are angry and people are pushing back like never before in history. Like it was so inspiring to see the wake up Weight Watchers hashtag result in what were backing away from giving teenagers free memberships. The Kerbo thing is stickier because I think it's still happening. I think it's still being pushed and sold. And as, of course, the fast track is still happening. But also what's happening is like an absolute awareness amongst these researchers and companies that they can no longer steamroll the public and no longer hoodwink people. Because there's so every time they release a product like this, there's a lot of media attention and um, articles written to counter the argument. And in history, we've not had this before. Mm-hmm. So I find this to be an enormously encouraging moment in time. And I, I heard on the grapevine that at the recent obesity conference, which is over there in New York, the fast trackers were part of a panel discussion where they were talking. I think the, the workshop was called, you know, how to continue doing the pediatric research in an era of outrage. So they're talking about it. I mean, they're obviously saying that they still want to keep doing what they've been doing, but they're finding it more difficult because of this outrage. So we need to keep pushing. I want people to keep complaining, keep writing letters keep up the pressure and and let these people know that it's no longer okay to just keep on doing useless stuff and expecting a different result. Not even useless, like harmful. Right, right. Harmful, not even useless. Yeah, but also know that there are massive problems in the field of paediatric obesity treatment. In, In the same journal that published that meta-analysis, Obesity Reviews, there's another paper where there's a group of 18 obesity researchers. So these are the people who do the weight-focused research, and even they are expressing concern about the standards and the conclusions being made by the paediatric obesity researchers. So this is it's a big problem, and it's lovely that it's getting this much attention. Yeah. So I'm realizing we didn't send you our final question, but we aren't going to let you go without asking it, which is if each parent listening to this episode could just take away and do one thing on the regular, what would you want them to do to help their children fully bloom? Oh, that's a lovely question. I encourage parents to talk to kids about diet culture and to raise their kids' critical awareness of the messages that are being given to kids and teens about bodies. So I have a a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old. They're both girls. And um, I have been secretly schooling them, not even secretly, in critical thinking about um, culture and stuff like that. And now my 12-year-old is so all over it. So she, she can see a diet culture message coming from 50 paces. And, and she's 
going to push back against that message rather than absorb it like a sponge. So, and, and I think that that ability for kids to see marketing for what it is, is an awesome skill because the message that we're given is that our bodies are wrong and we need to buy the product. And if we can teach our kids our bodies are never wrong, but also, you know, there's this whole kind of um, marketing machine that's out there trying to get us, then we can protect them. That's really protective of um, against eating disorders and it's protective of self-esteem as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Leslie, you are the bigger research junkie. What are your thoughts on what we learned from Louise? I'm so inspired and so grateful for when someone picks apart research because while I am the bigger research junkie, it's still quite dense and complicated and it's really nice to talk to someone, for me, really nice to talk to someone who has a better grasp than I do and can pick it apart even more expertly. And I'm just grateful for people out there doing that because it's so easy. I mean, it's not easy to publish an article, but as you can see from this conversation, it's easy to claim things that when you dig into it are just not there. Mm -hmm. The claims are just not there. And uh, it's very frustrating as a parent because we don't have any time to do the work that she's doing. And I'm just feeling very grateful for her right now. Yeah, me too. I like her. I like her. She's spunky. <laughs> no, and, and I also feel very, like, empowered and supported when I hear someone like Louise, like, just spout off all of these facts. And I think sometimes that's what I look to. I think this is, like, hence our whole research-based project, right? All of our resources are thoughtfully curated to make sure that there's research behind everything. Like we're not just sitting here trying to help you feel better about yourselves. We really want to look to the research to help people with their sort of knowledge gathering. But what I find sometimes it's not always as effective as I think it's going to be to like pound somebody with research. Mm -hmm. And I think about parents in particular of kids let's say, in larger bodies who are seeing them struggle socially, let's say, or seeing them struggle with self-esteem and body image and how they just want relief, how everyone is just in so much pain. Like it's emotionally incredibly painful to face any sort of adversity or marginalization. And so sometimes I'm reminded of the importance of gently putting forth research. I think it's great that there are people like Louise who can get fired up because we need them. And I think we get fired up too. But I think we also need to be able to hear people and and maybe also bring in the compassion piece, right? Like, here's the research, here's what you need to know. And like, thankfully, someone like this is putting it all together for us. And also just to think about how this only makes it worse, like how this only makes it harder, right? Yeah, do you know what I'm this, saying? I do. And I mean, I think this is we can zoom out into the wider picture. You know, this is our first episode of 2020. It is a time where in the back of everyone's mind is that health weight loss resolution that's 
been there since you were kids probably and what you're doing with that right now and how marketing and the industry has preyed on that pain you know that there's also lots and lots of research to help businesses make money off of vulnerability off of vulnerability you know and and how there's a demand for a solution here and while there's not a solution in changing your body there's a lot of proposed solutions there and we just want you to be mindful of that as you walk through January 2020 and being compassionate with that side of yourself or your children or your friends or your family who are talking about this maybe you could send them this podcast um, but just to really really start to as in Deborah Gard's episode kind of reframe the problem Mm -hmm. and and try to work with alternate solutions for these resolutions and to kind of to teach our kids how to find an alternate solution to the oppression and the weight-based bullying and the weight stigma and the being in a marginalized body. The solution is just not restriction. It causes so many, so many, so many problems. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up, I, I am curious... Leslie, do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2020? You're putting me on the spot here. I haven't come <laughs> up with any, but I would say it's to spend more time with my family, mm-hmm. my husband and my kids, and just to spend more time all mm-hmm. together as a family. Quality time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about you, Zoe? Do you have any resolutions? I think... My resolution is, well, connected to, I guess I can share that I'm expecting a baby. I realize that that's, why not? Yeah. <laughs> so that's happening. And it's a, it's a baby girl. So this is making all of this like, whoa, on my radar even more than ever before. But I think I am also wanting to spend more time with my family, but especially in preparation for this life transition that's coming, I want to try to practice more self-compassion and more quiet moments with myself because I feel like those are going to be fewer and farther between as I become a mother of three. So just to be able to dedicate a little bit more time to be intentional about just sitting by myself and like breathing for three minutes, that that sounds like a nice resolution. <laughs> Modest, it sounds like. But it it's hard to find that time sometimes. For sure. For sure. I'll try to help you with that one. Thank you. <laughs> Remind you of it. So that's our show. That's our show. We'd love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.